You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifled barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue Q line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your queue. Welcome to the Hunt of Ore podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 72, Annie White's Peak to Plate. Happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Nick is joined by blog author of Peak to Plate, Wild Game Cook, and Coolish Mom, Annie Whites. Annie has matched her passion for creating in the kitchen to now incorporate her family's catch and quarry. Raising her boys and writing her wild game recipes has Annie joining her husband on hunts, even while pregnant, and getting behind the rifle herself. So make sure you told mom that you love her, and get ready for some impressive recipes on this episode of Huntivore. Well, hey, folks, beautiful night here in Michigan. I tell you, it, the, warm, the temperature's playing with us. It's going up and down, up and down. But we had an 80-degree day, and Instagram and Facebook and all the social medias were just popping out with mushrooms. Everybody's fine in morels except for me, although I haven't looked super hard yet. I've been home doing other projects. But at the same time, it's nice to see that the mushroomers are out there and the foragers are finally getting after their their bounty that's out there. But I'm talking with somebody out west, and I wonder if the mushrooms are popping out there. So we'll have to talk to her. But anyway, I'm with Annie Weiss. She's the author of Peak to Plate, and she's a wife. She's a hunter. She does some angling. Do you do any foraging, Annie? 
You know, I'd really like to. I have not really gotten into it. I always come across mushrooms and I look at them and I think they're super cool. I love looking at them, but I have not brought any home yet because I'm not quite confident in my abilities to figure out what ones are good and what ones are not so good. Yes, yes. The whole keying out and identifying what you're bringing home is always is always a tough thing. I mean, even with here in Michigan, we've got the big debate on there's morels and then there's false morels. And there's a whole big thing on, you know, people will be like, oh, that's a false morel and totally downplay it. And other people are like, that's absolutely a, a true morel. And so it's just this back and forth battle with them. I think what I'm ultimately coming down to just being one that lives maybe in the kitchen. And, you know, if I'm specializing in pursuing the game, the foraging, that might be something I outsource. So maybe the whole kicker to all this, Annie, is we just find ourselves a source that's willing to share. That might be have to be the route that we go with. Sure. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> like a good idea. <laughs> well, good deal. Well, thanks for coming on, Annie. There's a lot of reasons why I wanted to bring you on. One, because of your um, your blog and your website of Peak to Plate. Um, another, because you love tacos. Uh, I am, I'm too, am a taco lover. Um, but I also had on here is you also called yourself a coolish mom. And I like how you added in there that you think you're hip, but you want to just make, you want to check your ego a little bit with the ish. Is that what you were going with? You were trying to be humble. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I do a few cool things that I, I guess I consider to be cool mom stuff, but I'm still a mom. I still make my kids eat their vegetables, that sort of thing. So <laughs> I don't, I'm not super cool, just a little bit. <laughs> well, you're trying. And that's the that's the kicker right there is you're trying to be the coolish mom and you're doing a great job with their with your kids. So another reason why I had you on is like this is our Mother's Day episode. So happy early Mother's Day to you. Thank you. Has uh the husband or the kids surprised you with uh any plans yet for your for your venture this weekend? Or is it one of those things like they're just gonna kind of be impromptu? Uh, when they tell you about their plans? Well, I would guess either impromptu or they don't have any plans because I'm not sure what's going on yet. So. <laughs> They're just really good at keeping secrets. That's, let's right. just hope for that. <laughs> I, think, I think ours is going to have to be breakfast in bed. I think that's going to be our route because we're, we're doing a lot of running around this weekend. Um, this actually episode will launch just after uh, Mother's Day. We'll be on the Monday post Mother's Day. Um, but since we're, we're here and we're just talking about um, that whole day of celebrating moms in our life, our mother-in-laws, our stepmoms, all down the line, these, these women in our lives really do make a huge impact. How did your mom have an impact on what you're doing with Peak to Plate right now? So my mom didn't necessarily have an impact on the wild game aspect of it. She's not a hunter herself. She's not super big on the eating the wild game. She doesn't, she doesn't really allow it in her kitchen actually. So, um, but she's an awesome cook and, um, she has been that way as long as I can remember. Um, she's always let us play around in the kitchen and help her out with things. Um, she's always trying new things. I, I mean, I can't really, there's not that many dishes that I remember that she made over and over again. It was always something new. Um, so, she definitely showed me how to try new things um, and experiment in the kitchen. And she definitely inspired me that way. Well, good deal. I know you said that she did a lot of different things. Was there an experience that you had when you were either eating something that she made or even helping her make something that you made that just really sticks out? Um, you know, I mean, there is one dish, I guess, that she did make frequently and that we asked for a lot. Um, and it's super simple and it's actually, it's on my website, um, but bulgogi lettuce wraps. So um, it's a really simple recipe. It's just some red meat of your choice, marinated in um, like soy sauce, sesame oil, rice vinegar, green onions, a lot of green onions and a lot of garlic. Um, and then you just cook it up in there and put it in some leaf lettuce with some sticky rice and whatever hot sauce you want, um, usually like sriracha or sambal. And it's just, it's super simple, but it's like a really refreshing dish. And it's just something that I always remember her making. 
that's really cool. Did she kind of focus, or did I shouldn't say focus, but did she venture out into doing a lot of Asian cuisine? Because I'm looking just on your your uh, website here, you know, we're talking about venison su- su- uh, sushimi. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about that one as well. And then here she's got a lettuce wrap that's really Asian inspired. Did she like to really venture out past normal American cuisine? Yeah, definitely. I mean, not just Asian cuisine, but all over the place, a lot of um, Mexican, I guess, Indian, Thai, um, all over the place. That one specifically, uh, I don't know. I had a distant relative that was stationed somewhere in Korea. And when they came back, we had like a big family dinner and they made this bulgogi for everyone. And ever since then, um, it just was kind of like a family staple. That's fun. That's fun. How something like that, where she just was like, yeah, I'll just give it a shot. And then, you know, started passing it down to you guys. And now it's just one, something that just kind of sticks in with you. I know in our household, uh, goulash made a big impact. Um, I mean, not that chili wasn't good, but something about uh, having noodles in with uh, the burger that was in there. A lot of the stewed tomato that would come out. Uh, my brother was super picky. And what I remember about the dish is he had to, well, she had to, my my mom, my mother would have to slice them extremely thin and then mince them extremely small so that when she did brown those in, I mean, like to sweat them only took like 35 seconds, but then, then you add the other stuff that was in there, the garlic and stuff. But yet, I mean, he would, he could pick out a piece of onion and it would just ruin it for him. And of course, then he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have eat anything. So I would end up finishing my bowl and his bowl. And I, I'm a happy camper at that point, but I just remember that dish was always one of those real polarizing, like it'd be a cold night and, man, that would just really fit the spot. And then to hear my brother complain that there was onions in it, just kind of <laughs> solidified the whole thing. That's funny. I put onions in everything. So that wouldn't really work for me. <laughs> but we were talking earlier and you've been blessed with your boys being really good eaters. They haven't turned down much of what uh, you've thrown at them. What's probably the most difficult thing to get them? Is it is it vegetables to get down in them or is it meat? What What's the tough one? to get down um I mean I feel like it depends on the day and on the kid for sure so one day vegetables are super cool the other day not so much um I I don't know so my my oldest he's a really big meat eater my youngest really loves the carbs all the bread and the pasta and all that sort of stuff um but you know sometimes I make things a little too spicy I guess so I don't feed those to my youngest because that just seems mean. But um, to my oldest, you know, he just, he kind of, he puts extra sour cream on it or he takes a big drink of milk and says, hey, that was kind of spicy. And then he moves on and just keeps eating it. So um, I really am pretty fortunate that they are good eaters. That's awesome. And I like his fix. Yeah, just a little more sour cream. That always seems to fix anything (laughs) when it's going wrong. Being a mom too. Um you have a different perspective when it comes to raising kids. And then even now that we're adding in your own adventure of now you're pursuing your own protein, you're pursuing uh, your own game. Now you, you married into the outdoor lifestyle. You had uh, previous relatives that were there, but then you married in. So this has kind of been a journey for you on the beginning of not only getting into the outdoors, but being a mom in the outdoors. What's, what has that been like? Um, sorry. Do you want to know like about my journey or about being a mom? Yeah. Sorry. Let's, that was a big question. Let's, let's back up into you getting into the outdoors. We'll start there first. Okay. So, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in Cody, Wyoming. It's right outside of Yellowstone. So there's a whole lot of um, ways to get outdoors and go fishing, hunting, camping, hiking, all the different stuff. Um, my stepdad was a big hunter and angler. Um, and I, you know, I saw him do it all the time, but I mostly just did like the camping and hiking aspect of being outside. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to high school, I met my husband, um, was not married in high school, but met him in high school. And um you know, he was a big hunter and angler as well. And so, um, you know, I came home and I was like, hey, Tony, that's my stepdad. Uh, 
can you teach me how to fly fish? And he's, of course, super excited about that. Um, so he, you know, took me out in the backyard with, I mean, he has a plethora of fly, fly rods. So we had a lot to choose from um, and just showed me the basics and then took me out on the river. And um, yeah, I just, it was awesome. And I loved it ever since that moment. Of course, I was doing it, you know, to impress uh, my boyfriend at the time, but it turned out really loving it. And he still sticks around. So I guess it works out okay. Um, yeah, so then, you know, in college, uh, we were together and he was still hunting. And so I got um, a lot of experience eating and cooking wild game, uh, mostly elk and pronghorn or antelope. Um, that's what he usually brought home. And then, you know, it still was quite a few years before I decided that I could kind of do this for myself. So um, it started after I became a mom. Um, you know, I really got into making sure that I'm having the best food for my kids that I can. Um, and so it, my views on hunting, not, not that I was ever against it, but it really kind of changed into um, how I could provide some high quality food for my family. So then a couple of years, I years ago, I decided to uh, take Hunter's Ed and then we started planning my first hunt. Wow. Wow. To go from what a journey of like, you know what, I, I want to kind of dabble into this. And then to the point of, yeah, you're full blown now, wild game on the menu. And you got to, you know, it's one of those things like, yeah, you had to kind of learn on the fly on, on how to cook it. So good on you for being able to do that. There's not a lot of cooks that make that, that jump. They really all of a sudden, you know, they'll talk about how good they are in the kitchen, but then the same times you bring up something that we'll, we'll try venison. Like, well, that's, you know, we, you know, get, you hear the excuses come out there and there, but you've just took that head on. Um, how did hunting perspective change for you when you decided to make that jump? Was it not to say that you were caught up in like the, the Bambi syndrome of these, these beautiful animals that are out there, we shouldn't be going after them. We should be able to just observe them and coexist with them. Um, but what was that transition like to be like, all right, these are now going to become meals. Was it, you had a lack of things that were in your grocery store? Was it, this just, this was something that was going to be available. How was that transition from, like you said, where it really wasn't a thing until you had to make that mental switch? Sure. So um, as a kid, you know, I said that my stepdad did a lot of hunting and so he was always bringing back um, a bunch of different meats, but my mom did not really like it in the kitchen and we didn't really eat it for dinner. Um, occasionally did go into the bulgogi, depends on the day. Um, but, you know, growing up, I, um, my stepdad always made on our fire pit out back, he called it stick meat. And it was basically just chunks of whatever wild game marinated in something and then put on a stick and then cooked over a fire and so I never knew really knew that anything else could come out of a deer than stick meat I guess as they call it <laughs> which is really funny now um and then you know in college I was with my husband and he was bringing home all this meat and you know as a poor college kid it's super nice to have this awesome protein but even then um it was kind of just that, you know, it was just a, a way to have um, a different protein in our diets. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess a few years down the road, I started really experimenting with stuff. Um, I remember specifically one night making like a carne asada um, with an elk steak cooked in a cast iron pan. And my husband was just like, wow, that was just, it was cooked perfectly and it just tasted so good. And that kind of really sparked something in me to start trying new things and um, you know all these different meats that we had you can use them for so many more things than people think that you can exactly exactly it's not just wrap it in bacon and have a thick gravy over the top of it so it smothers every little bit of taste into it but yet you can really make that elk sing and it does right. take a pre or a uh, precise hand to do that I yeah that's a great perspective I love that and it's fun to get to know that too because uh, I am also an adult onset hunter and really it came about like post-college where I finally got a full-paying job 
And I was like, well, I'm providing for my family here. Yeah. It's just me and my wife, but you know what? All my buddies go hunting and they talk about the amazing uh, meat that they do get off these venison. They make, you know, sticks and uh, sausages. And I'm like, I think that's something I want to, I want to get into. And so, yeah, it's not one of those hobbies where you can like, well, maybe I'm going to jump in part way and just kind of see what it's like, you know, kind of, you know, put the toes in, you got to jump in full force and making that transition. Yeah. You are then presented with that opportunity of like, Holy smokes. Now I have an animal on the ground and I got to do something with it. Mm -hmm. You got a chance to go on your own hunt. We, we kind of paused there when you were on uh, hunter's ed and you were preparing to go on your first hunt. You are now in the uh, the realm of successful hunter here, having a white-tailed doe. Congratulations. That was just this past you. year you got that? Yep, just this past fall. Excellent. So now were you, when we were talking earlier too, um, were you, you were explaining how it was almost like a, a stock style up to it, um, that you were, you were looking out over the field. You weren't sitting in a uh, a stand or anything, but you were looking out across the field and taking a rifle shot at one of these. Could you lay that, lay that story out for us? Yeah. So, um, it was on my parents' land, um, just outside of Cody, Wyoming. Um, they have a pretty big open pasture and then, um, it's down on the river bottom. And so there's a bunch of trees and everything. Um, but we went out that morning. Uh, my stepdad has like a ground blind type thing but it's like a permanent structure so we went out there <clears throat> and hung out there for a few hours in the morning and nothing was coming by uh, so we decided to go inside because midday nothing's doing anything um, but my stepdad watches them every day and he knows that they come out right about dinner time and start grazing in the pasture so then uh, we went inside and kind of waited and then my stepdad saw one out in the far end of the pasture. So we just got uh, suited up, I guess, dressed and got the gun ready and headed out there. I had my husband and my stepdad right next to me. So that was really nice to have that bit of a comfort zone there. Um, but I still did everything myself. So I, you know, got the gun all set up and ready to go um, and just kind of waited for her to turn just perfectly and make the right step. And um, I think she was at about 150 yards and so then I made the shot and it was a perfect heart shot so it did not take very long um, and it was it was just a really cool experience it wasn't some glamorous hunt you know when I are stalking an animal or anything like that out in the wilderness but um, it was a perfect situation for my first hunt because there weren't a lot of variables um, and I could just really enjoy it and not worry about um, things that would go wrong and it just it worked out perfectly good deal hey a successful hunt is always the trophy right there doesn't matter how many points it has on or how many pounds it is that is a trophy so excellent job congratulations to you Thank on you. that so now you got this animal sitting on the ground and you got to bring this home what's what's the conversations that you're having with your kids as you're pulling this up, like I, as I've been able to, you know, talk to my boys and, and about bringing in a deer and then having them help out where they can, um, you know, it, it steers into almost like I, I'm telling them why this is happening. I'm telling them that, you know, we're, we're going to be eating on this. So then when we do pull out the steaks, I, I, you know, I ask, remember, do you remember when we pulled that deer out? Remember when we were cutting this deer up? trying to get them to think about that and put those connections together. Is that kind of the same conversations you're going through with your boys? Are they really inquisitive about uh, you bringing in meat into the house that that's wild? Yeah. So uh, my youngest, not so much, he's almost a year old, so he doesn't ask too many questions, but my four-year-old <laughs> is definitely pretty curious. Um, so my family actually, does uh, like an annual pig butchering every year. Um, it's been something that's been in my family for generations. Um, and so we brought him to that for the past couple of years. And so uh, this wasn't his first experience seeing an animal, um, you know, die and butchering it and everything. 
Um, and so he's super interested in that. He totally gets that meat comes from animals. Uh, so I'm really proud of him for that, that he understands that and still wants to eat it. Um, so yeah, so uh, with my deer, my mom was able to bring both of them out and show it to him. Um, and he kind of just had a, had a little moment and um, hung out with us for a little bit. And then uh, we had to take him back inside because my parents have grizzly bears that wander through yeah. their pastures. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we sent them back inside for when it was time to uh, cut it open. But gotcha. he um, definitely is super interested. He's always asking at the dinner table where the food came from, you know, what animal it came from. Sometimes he likes to guess what animal it came from. Um, and he's, he's just really involved. So it's really cool. It's, I think it's super important that, you know, as we, you know, are raising our kids and we're bringing them up as much as, you know, academics, they, they got to know that stuff. They got to know how to read the right. Um, but at the same time of like giving them the, I don't know, the, the wherewithal of like where, where food comes from and that it's not just always the grocery store that's going to have it. I mean, I think we saw that here at the pandemic and I know this comes up a lot in my talks lately this past year is like, as we're talking about COVID and how things shut down and we watched a food supply chain basically get punched in the gut and not be able to provide that. I mean, people did go hungry, but I think at the same time, there was a lot of food banks that were ready. There was a lot of communities that really rallied around people. And I know sportsmen specifically, like, we opened up our freezers to be like, who, who needs meat? We have this, let us, let us share this, um, mm -hmm. that we've taken, not necessarily, yeah, we've taken control of our own food system, whether you're a gardener, a forager, angler, however you're acquiring your own food, even someone who goes to a local uh, farm and you're a CSA and says either, hey, hey I'm going to put in so many shares into, into what you're growing, or I'm going to buy a half a beef and then leave that in the freezer that I can get off of like that, that really having that control, I think was a really big thing that, um, folks that are close to their food chain really felt. Um, did you really see that in this pandemic where you were able to really not have a huge issue with being able to find, uh, nourishing protein? Yeah, so we definitely felt pretty fortunate to be able to have a freezer full of meat. Um, I also was quite pregnant at the time when the pandemic hit. And so I was in like full nesting mode. So I made a whole bunch of um, different freezer meals, you know, and that was stuff from the grocery store as, long, as well as uh, game meats. And um, so we had, we were fully stocked and ready to go. Good deal. Good deal. I forget who I was talking to. But she made the connection that said it's when the aisles and the freezers lost the ready-made stuff that people threw a fit. And then it was then the meat counter and then it was the produce. But like the stuff that you think would have went quickly first, it was that didn't spark the whole issue. It was the ready-made freezer meals or microwave dinners that all went and then people were then were oh my goodness I have to learn how to cook again like I'm not ready to do this <laughs> right yeah I do feel fortunate that I know how to cook pretty well so we're good to go there just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in it really does mean a lot I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at Huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network 
which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. You also cut this deer up, or whatever game you you had. You open up your kitchen to the butchering process, and you mentioned that your mom was hands off of this. No, it is not coming into her kitchen. It's gonna go wherever, wherever stepdad's gonna take it. He can then cook it up there, or he can then butcher it wherever he's at. But it's not in her kitchen. But you've opened up your kitchen to this experience. Where did you learn your butchery skills? Is this just something you've watched your stepdad do, or was it like a one-on-one tutorial that you were doing? How did you get the uh, the skills that you have right now? Uh, so I definitely learned most everything from my husband, a little bit from the internet as well. Um, you know, but as far as uh, letting it into my kitchen, you know, I'm also eating this meat and I look at my garage and I'm like, "Eh, it's kind of gross in there. So I I would rather have it in a controlled, clean environment when it's going to be meat that I'm feeding me and my boys. Um, And, you know, countertops are meant to be cleaned so you can clean anything up. Um, I wouldn't ever probably skin an animal in my kitchen but once it's quartered out and everything it's meat at that point so it doesn't bother me to have it in there good deal yeah that skinning process it's you can be very very careful and you're still going to have those stray hairs that pop off and then just fluff everywhere i mm-hmm. i do my darndest to like all right you got to make all your you know you, you poke in cut out of the hide and you try to pull everything as far as the hide goes and not just grab the hair when it, I mean, it always happens. You get up pieces of hair and then you got to end up coming back later to clean those up. Sure. Um, yeah, my wife, bless her heart. She's been able to give me the real estate of like three feet by two and a half feet piece of uh, high density plastic that you would find in a butcher shop. That is my kitchen setup. So if I end up do quartering an animal, and putting it in the fridge due to heat or something. And then I was like, well, now I got it in the cooler, or at least I have it in the refrigerator, cooling in the garage. Um, I can bring in one quarter of a time, take care of that, and then not not make a big mess. Even mm-hmm. though our island is, you know, eight foot by four foot wide, it's a nice big island where people could, you know, gather around for big gatherings, or it'd be a perfect way to, you know, just set a carcass on it and be able to, you know, <laughs> cut it up at that point. She's not ready to let us do that. So we are relegated to the shop for that, but I've, I've really gone to the, the extra effort to try and set up a, a big stainless steel. Like you said, cleanliness is next to godliness. And if this is stuff that I'm going to be eating, I want to make sure that I have the utmost care in the equipment so that that translates into the meat. But right. I'm glad to hear that you, you let them in the, in the kitchen. My good buddy's grandma would let us basically take over her kitchen and we could Mm -hmm. cut all our animals up in there and have a good time. And then, yeah, we all then get married and we try to do the same thing in each of our (laughs) houses. And we learned quickly, like, you know, what? that just, it's not going to fly in everybody's house. It's just (laughs) not going to happen. It's not for everyone. (laughs) Um, favorite critter to chase. Now, I know you, you're successful on a whitetail, but whitetail isn't the only thing that you've chased. But uh, what was your, what's the favorite thing to go after? Sure. So, I mean, yeah, but like you said, whitetail is the only thing I've ever hunted. It's the only thing I've ever had a tag for. Uh, but I've been along multiple times with my husband, uh, just kind of in the learning process of seeing what it's all about so I can decide if I want to do it for myself. Um, and he's a big elk hunter, so... I've been with him on a few day hunts hunting elk, and I would really love to be able to do that for myself someday. Um, It's totally different than what I experienced before. It's a lot of hiking and then a lot of sitting and waiting, but um, you have to be just so still and quiet that you just really get to observe the world around you. Um, And it just kind of goes on without you even, without knowing that you're there. Um, You just get to see so many cool things happen um, just with wildlife and uh, it's just so quiet and peaceful 
um, last fall, we actually went to the elk refuge outside of Jackson, Wyoming, um, so outside of Teton National Park, and it's super pretty there. You know, people think of Wyoming, that's what they think of um, is the Tetons. So uh, they have an elk refuge there. Um, there weren't any elk there when we went because it hadn't snowed quite enough to bring them down in there. Um, but I was I was a few months pregnant at that time. And so, um, you know, crossing the river was pretty darn cold and um, like a half frozen swamp and hiking a whole bunch um, was, it was quite the experience while pregnant, but it was, uh, it was amazing and just the views and everything. So we didn't see a single elk or sign of them or anything, but it was just, it's so awesome to be in the, um, in the environment that they live in. So let me back up a second. You're pregnant, you're hiking miles and probably hundreds of feet of elevation crossing mm -hmm. moving bodies of water and <laughs> into muck and mire of swamps you need to take that ish off coolish mom i was going to say <laughs> you are you're a badass mom that's what you are oh thank you <laughs> i think that story needs to somehow get translated to those boys to be like listen you have been on an elk hunt you were in my right. belly and i mm -hmm. carried you all over the place yep i tell you there is no like I even look at the things that, that my wife has done being pregnant and just the achievements she's done. It's like, you can't slow her down. And I think that's just something of the mother instinct that, you know, you're like, even though I'm pregnant, I'm not down and out. You don't need to coddle me. You don't need to leave me to continue to just nest in this, in this household. I can be out there with you doing things. So, Hey, that, right. that's a cool story right there yeah favorite critter to eat so you've got you got whitetail you got elk i've seen some fish recipes mm -hmm. what is your favorite critter to cook up well i think i'll have to say elk but maybe it's just because i haven't had it for a few years um so maybe i miss it so uh it really but it depending on the animal it can be it's just super mild um, and tender and you get just a ton of it when you um, harvest one so it's definitely definitely my favorite um, but lately we've really enjoyed uh, pronghorn it's kind of a, an acquired taste for sure uh, but I think a lot of people mistreat it in the field it's one of those where it needs to be cooled down super fast um, in order for it to taste good so we've been pretty good about treat treating it well and it's been just really delicious yeah that's one of those critters i've not chased pronghorn i've been very interested in it it is on my list that i need to go do um but that's kind of the big thing that people do when they do go after them and i get a chance to talk with them later is that so there's this animal and i'm out here on the plains and it could be hot or you know the, the conditions are just going to be what they are and it's usually going to be dry it's usually going to be warm and you put this animal down and you're like quick get it to someplace cool and you are you just look at horizon of nothing you're just right. like shoot <laughs> this thing is either going to need to get into a cooler now there has been thought into what's going to happen to this animal after i kill it otherwise it's going to ride in a truck bed for I don't know, maybe an hour to a two hours to get to some place that it can be cooled down. That's right. got to be a lot of preparation to go on a, on an antelope hunt. Yeah, so you definitely have to be prepared um, with a whole lot of ice and a big cooler. Um, and pronghorn, just the way that they live out there on the prairies, like, you know, they live out there when it's super hot, but they also live in the dead of winter where it's, you know, sub-zero temperatures all the time. And so they're um, skin and hair just really insulates them super well. So you have to for sure skin it as quickly as possible. But then, you know, if you're not close to your truck, you're out in the middle of the dusty desert. And what do you do with that? Um, so that's definitely a struggle. But um, I think too, if you gut it quickly um, and then take it to your truck and then just stuff it full of ice, then that can really help cool it down pretty quickly too. If you can't quarter it out and put it in a cooler. That works pretty well. 
Gotcha. We've done that in, the, in a pitch here, even with whitetails, where we hang it up, you you, know, you open up that cavity as much as possible, you just steam, steam rolling out, and mm-hmm. just taking that, you know, just the bag, you haven't poked a hole in it yet, you haven't dumped the ice yet, you just put the whole bag right in the chest right. cavity, and that at least gets you, you know, it's it's definitely not the best setup, but it's one of those, like, it'll get you to where you need to go uh, right. at that point, so... No, that's good. I'm glad you're thinking of preparation when it comes to those animals as well. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite dish you make with antelope? Um, I have a carne asada recipe that I really like to use. It's um, super simple. It's, I think, just lime, uh, jalapeno, cilantro, salt, pepper, cumin, I think. Um, and I just marinate it for less than two hours, any longer than that, and it kind of can get tough. Um, and then I grill it or cook it in a cast iron pan and I make a homemade chimichurri sauce and put it on there. And then, um, and you can just slice it really thin and you can just eat it like that, or you can put it in a taco, uh, which you know, I love. So, uh, yeah, I mean, or you can put it on a salad, whatever you, whatever you want. And it's just really flavorful. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. I use like flank and, uh, skirt steak and I've recently started saving, the brisket of whitetails and mm-hmm. doing kind of what you're talking there where it's it's basically you just like sear it either real hard and fast on charcoal or yeah you get the cast iron just ripping and it's literally 120 seconds each side um cut against the grain and what i like to do is take that that thin meat or that skirt meat and just lay it on fries and then the follow up with the chimichurri and mm-hmm. it really does have that, um, oh, what I'm thinking, it's a Canadian dish. It's basically fries and gravy. Poutine? Um, yes. It's basically like a fancy poutine because, <laughs> you know, you're just throwing stuff on top of fries. It can't be any, you know, it can't be bad. But that has just been my favorite go-to is like if I got skirt meat or thin uh, flank meat, sear that up, throw that on top of fries, and then, yeah, chimichurri the top of it. Sounds good. What do you put in your chimichurri? You got anything special you're you're putting into that? Um, I mean, it's I think it's a pretty standard chimichurri recipe. Um, I it's the herbs are cilantro and parsley. I think I use like a half and half mixture, um, and then I use uh, Fresno chilies and jalapenos and dice them up really fine, and um, some shallots, and then you kind of soak those in some red wine vinegar, and that just like really opens up the flavor and kind of pickles them a little bit. And then you mix in your herbs and um, salt and pepper and some olive oil and it's good to go. Um, I really, with chimichurri, I really like to make sure I uh, cut it all by hand instead of putting it in the food processor. I think it tastes a lot better that way. I was, that was my follow-up is do you blitz it or do you, you like a chunkier chimichurri at that point, or I would say a more authentic chimichurri mm-hmm. the the route that i go a maybe because i'm lazy but b that's just the way that i did it is throwing it in the food processor um and i think i got into the blend blender and it really did emulsify uh mm-hmm. the the oil in it it was really a like a a lime green consistency of what was going on it tasted dang good and it stuck all mm-hmm. over the fries so maybe that did help out a little bit but yeah i, I did know i'm like oh i'm definitely cheating on this when i'm, I'm throwing it in the blender <laughs> yeah it definitely gives a different uh flavor and texture if you do it by hand so let's jump into field or excuse me not field peak to plate you guys are up in the mountains we're in wyoming up there at peak to plate your website Who's your audience? Who are you writing to? Uh, So I would say, you know, I would hope mostly hunters that are looking for uh, different ways to prepare what they've harvested. Uh, But I also get a lot of people that reach out to me that are just like, hey, you know, this is a really cool lifestyle. I like just seeing what you do. Um, I would never do it myself, but it is super interesting. So there's definitely two sides of it. But I would say I write mostly towards people that um, are just looking for something new to try out. Has writing always been a, a thing that you've enjoyed, not just in the fact of like either in the academics of having to write something, but as you are, you're a dietitian by trade, like 
you're, I mean, at that point, you're reading studies, you're putting together menus, you're putting together what, what nutrients these kids are going to be getting, but has writing always been something that you've enjoyed to like put out not only the, the recipe, but then add a narrative, add a spin to what you're talking about? Um, honestly, no. So I'm kind of a woman of few words, as I like to say. Um, I don't really uh, like talking too much. I try to be pretty concise in what I say. Um, but it's been definitely a challenge for me. And um, I definitely see the the value of really explaining what I do um, and adding maybe a little bit of humor in there every now and then. Um, especially if you're new to cooking your wild game or cooking at all, I think it's really important to have a good background on what you're, what you're preparing. Um, and so it's just, I, I feel it's super helpful. I don't know if anyone really reads it, but, um, <laughs> if they are, I hope it's helping them. Well, we'll know that I've read about three or four of yours, uh, in, in preparation for a couple dishes that I'm really looking forward to. So yeah, you're getting the pull and I do enjoy reading them. You have a great style. Um, some of the narratives on that I read it on different websites, I'm like, well, maybe I can adapt this to uh, some venison, or maybe I can use this with uh, either some turkey or even a pheasant that I got. And as I scroll through, like after a while, I'm like, oh my goodness, they've written a novel and mm-hmm. about why this is so important. And it's like, listen, I don't, I don't care about Nana Jenkins right now. I, I want to just get into uh, the recipe. You can tell me about her later, but time is of the essence. Right. Um, but I really liked your style. You really give us like, this is why it's important. And then you give us some tips along the way, but then it's very much a step-by-step, Hey, here's how I did it and have fun with it. With your dish or with your recipes, do you write them as knowing that people are going to maybe adapt them? Do you give freedom to that? Or you're like, now this is what I do. And this is how I stick to it people are going to change it no matter what you're going to do, but do you, do you look for them to stick to it or anticipate that they're going to make some changes? Sure. So, um, I mean, a lot of what I'm making isn't rocket science necessarily. You know, I don't do a whole lot of, uh, baking recipes. Baking recipes are one thing that you, if you find one, you really probably shouldn't change it too much because it is a science. Um, but as far as mine go, you know, I have, uh, really a love for spices and garlic and bold flavors and everything. Um, So I use quite a bit of that in my cooking, but if you're not into that, you can definitely use less or substitute things out. Um, You know, I don't really want to see any comments on there. Like I totally changed it and it was awful, but (laughs) (laughs) because that's not cool. But if you changed it and you liked it, then that's, that's great. So at least I gave you an idea. Sounds good. I like to pose that question out to writers of recipes because it is, I've written a couple myself and I leave them very much on the, like, if you're going to change something, I, if I make something and you just like, you can't have whatever ingredient in it, like take it out. Like I want to be able to give that freedom for people to, to change that up. But I've also talked to others that are like, no, no, this, this is how it is. And this is the way it should be done. And mm-hmm. I don't think they read comments at all. They're just in their head. They're like, nope, this is how everybody approaches it and sticks with it. Right. You did mention that it doesn't take rocket science to do your recipes. At the same time, the one that has caught my eye is whitetail sushimi using raw venison. I feel like there's got to be some sort of science into making this dish. Like I'm very excited about it, but I, I need you to lay out, how are you, how are you handling your venison here that you are able to then prepare it and serve it raw? Sure. So, um, I mean, disclaimer, you know, eating raw food is definitely not the safest thing that you can do. Um, but you can definitely, take steps to make sure that it's as safe as it can be. Um, and if you're adventurous and you want to try it, then, then you go ahead and try it. So, um, you know, food safety with wild game definitely starts in the field. You want to make sure that, that you're making a clean shot, you know, no gut shots and not getting any of the, that nasty stuff on your meat. Um, and then you want to cool it down really quickly uh, and make sure that you're using clean knives, cutting boards and all that to 
cut it up um, and then you know make sure that you freeze it right away and that you're always keeping it cold enough right before you serve it. Um, so that's kind of as far as, as far as the food safety thing goes, that's, that's the steps that I would take. Excellent. Excellent. Cause yeah, that stuff, it does, it does worry me because I want to be able to bring food to my family and, and not get them sick. But at the same time, if like, I mean, my wife loves like almost like a rare blue steak where mm -hmm. basically fire has touched the outside and that's been about it. She, she likes it red and bloody on the inside. So serving like, or going and getting sushi, she's enjoyed that. And so like this idea of like being able to bring that raw element that she does enjoy uh, both texture and flavor to be able to bring that into wild game. I think that's really super exciting, at least on my end, I'm, I'm really amped to, to get a chance to cook that up. Now, how is that served? The sushimi isn't necessarily rolled in the rice. It's it's set on top of the rice or served just along with other items. How are, Now, how does your dish develop now with it being now uh, raw and then you're slicing this pretty thin at this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, sashimi is just the meat. So I think nigiri, I think that's what it's called when it's on the rice with just the meat and the rice um, as opposed to like a roll. And so this was just the meat. And I don't know if it's really the proper term because it's, you know, red meat, it's not fish, but that's what I decided to call it. Anyways, um, <clears throat> yeah, so I keep the meat um, mostly frozen so that you can slice it super thin. And then I lay out like a platter of um, paper towels and then put all the meat on a single layer on there and then cover it and put it back in the fridge until it's done thawing. And then it kind of, um, some of that liquid and the meat comes out of there um, and soaks into the paper towels and it kind of removes any sort of off flavors. And then also, you know, if you left the liquid on there, it probably would be kind of slimy. Um, so then, especially if you're eating it raw. So, and then it also really soaks up um, all the flavors of the ponzu sauce that I made a homemade. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it for the preparation. Gotcha. So it's really just, you know, the, the raw meat there at that point, are you adding salt to that at all? Or is it just, it's just the straight meat at that point. And then the, basically the, the touch is then the dipping sauce, the ponzu. Yeah. So it is, it's just the meat. Um, I made the ponzu the night before, uh, it kind of gets marinated, uh, with the soy sauce and the citrus and some bonito flakes and some kombu, which is a seaweed. Um, and then you strain that and then you uh, kind of lay out all of your meat in a serving dish and pour the ponzu over it. And then um, I put a chili crisp on there and some really thin jalapeno slices, um, some citrus zest and some more bonito flakes. And then I just pop it back in the fridge um, just for maybe like 10 minutes. And then it gives it a chance to soak up a little bit of that sauce without um, kind of cooking it because it is, it can be kind of like a ceviche type cook, uh, because it does have quite a bit of citrus in it. Um, but it's kind of a happy, happy medium in between there. I like it. I like it. I am really excited to try that out. Um, I think we got a, we got a date night coming up here soon at some point. I know it's mother's day, but at the same time, the boys, I don't really want to throw raw meat at the boys yet. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll just stick to the date night with us on, on the raw sushimi there. Full disclosure, I did not serve it to my kids. I saved one backstrap end for that and the other one got cooked up for them for dinner. So I'm Good not work. quite ready to do that either. Yes. And I'll just reiterate. Yeah, she did not feed raw meat to her children, nor am I <laughs> going to feed raw meat. And again, raw meat is probably not the best idea if that's something you're squeamish or don't have control on how you handled your wild game. I think one of the big things that we have or one of the things going for us as um, people who will go and get our own protein is our, our meat has only been handled by our hands at that right. point. So, you know, if you're even putting on gloves at that point, or just really taking that sanitation to the next level, you know, you can see that process. And I know the FDA, FDA is here to take care of that, um, steps for, I shouldn't say the, the FDA, what am I trying to say? Um, 
anyway, the agricultural system, they have stopping points and they have checks and balances that to make sure that things are done with quality. But at the same time, the amount of hands that touch a piece of domestic meat that then gets to the counter where then you then finally pick it up as the rightful now owner of this. Cause you you've now bought it. Like that's just a, there's a lot of space in there for, for things to go wrong. For sure. Now, don't dis domestic. I mean, that's, that's one thing that, that keeps our, our country alive. But at the same time, if we can supplement with some dang good white tail sashimi, I'm, I'm all about that. Yeah. The other recipe that really caught my attention is because I've got a couple pheasants still living in my freezer and I, I made a good effort to be like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to cook these things up. I'm not going to let them die to the freezer. I want to make sure that I'm you know, going to use these when they're in their prime, that there's not freezer burn or that they have lost any integrity. And, you know, I made that commitment, but now here it is, you know, a year later. And I still have these pheasants in the freezer and I'm like, oh, the, t- the, the ticking clock is going on these things. I want to make sure that I get them in their prime. I need to put something together. I only have two of them in there. And I think that's probably my hang up is it's like I put a lot of effort into getting those and I want to pick mm-hmm. just the right recipe for it. Sure. Um, so looking around and now I've, I've come to yours. I've heard a lot about, uh, I think, I think, I think you, uh, you laid it out. It's an Indian dish and mm-hmm. it's this butter. It's a like a butter chicken, which I've heard incredible things about how it's just moist and flavorful, not just literally, not just butter on the uh, chicken. Like that's, that's not where we're at. We're talking about something deeper and a, like a bigger process. And you've translated that into pheasant. What's the, pro- like, where does that whole recipe start when it comes to making butter pheasant? What's your, what are your first steps into making that sure. dish? So um, it doesn't start with butter, although the name would imply that. And it actually doesn't really even have that much butter in it, maybe a couple of tablespoons, but um, it's still super rich with the cream in it. Um, but anyway, so you can start with really any sort of um, bird that you want. And I used both breasts and legs because that's what we had. Um, and you just cut it into some chunks and you marinate it in a, it's a yogurt marinade that's yogurt, lemon juice, and then garam masala, which is a spice mixture. Um, you can buy it or you can make your own. It has quite a few different spices in it. Um, and so, yeah, so you marinate that for a little while and then you heat up some butter, not very much again, and then cook it, cook the meat in the butter for a little while. You don't cook it until it's all the way done. It's just kind of to brown the outside a little bit. Um, Then put it on a plate and then you make your sauce the rest of the way. So then you cook up like some onions and garlic and ginger in there. Um, Add in some tomato paste and some, uh, I think usually they just use cream, but I use cream and coconut milk just because I like the flavor of it and uh, simmer that for a while. And then add your pheasant back in there or whatever bird you're choosing and just let it go for a little while until it's good and tender or cooked all the way through. Um, Serve it over some jasmine rice or whatever rice is your favorite, I guess. Um, Top it with some cilantro and serve it with some fresh flatbread. And it's just, it's super flavorful. Um, My version is definitely, it's a little bit on the spicy side, but it's not bad. You can definitely add it or take away to go one way or the other. Um, but it's just really rich and deep in flavor. Good deal. The sauce and the marinade, does that have the potential to overpower the pheasant? Or do you really get the flavor of whatever said game bird that's coming out of it? Um, you know, I've only tried it with pheasant. And to me, pheasant is pretty mild. So I would say it definitely has the potential to overpower it. Um, you can, you know, you can still kind of taste the pheasant, but um, if you use something that had a stronger flavor, maybe you would still taste that, but um, the the spices are definitely the main flavor in the dish. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. We uh, getting busted by a fly over here. Um, I've got some buddies who, who really like the, the waterfowl and they talk about how divers are, just one of those things that it's 
it's an either acquired taste or they're they're just not willing to to even shoot them because they're like i just don't want to deal with having to try to figure out how to do that and maybe sure. something along the lines of like buttered divers might <laughs> that might even be a good route for them yeah it anyway, might work <laughs> i think uh i think the pheasants that i got right now that this is going to be their uh their result here is we're going to go with some with butter pheasant i really i really like the way you laid out that that whole sauce and how it, it really does sound like a lot of richness and flavor comes out of that. So thank yeah. you for putting that together. We're going to get, a, give that a try. Yeah, of course. Well, Annie, we have come down to our crescendo of our show. This is the two dish breakdown. And this is where I give you basically two scenarios that you're going to then give me a dish that includes wild game. The first one, being a Mother's Day edition, we want to make our children happy, or you want to make your boys happy. You want to get them some good, solid food in them. We've already talked a little bit how they're awesome eaters. What's a solid win for your boys, say, on a Monday or Tuesday night? You know, you're, you've got limited time. What's a solid win on a, on a weeknight? Sure. So, like you said, they're great eaters, but they, of course, still love you know, quote, kid food, I guess, or uh, just plain food, I guess. So uh, they really love cheeseburgers. That's definitely one. Um, I actually just made some last night, some little sliders. My four-year-old loves those because they're just the right size for him to hold on to, although he can eat multiple of them. So it's really like he's eating a whole cheeseburger, um, <laughs> but he loves those. And then also um, just a good old steak, you know, um, people, I think, tend to save those for weekend nights but they're I mean they're really pretty fast to cook and um my kids love them my four-year-old could probably eat an entire like one pound piece of backstrap to himself if we let him but we like to share them a little bit so. yeah that's good spread spread the love when it comes to that don't feed it all to them in one night right all right the second one this one's going to be a little bit tricky um it's going to be your last meal now I want I don't want to get all Debbie Downer. You know, let's just play out the scenario that that dad and the kids are all taken care of and they're going to be just fine, but tomorrow's going to be your last day on earth and you get one last meal. What is that meal going to be when you finally depart us here from planet Earth? Yeah, that is definitely a tough one. Um I really have a lot of favorite foods, I guess. Um and as far as cuisines go, I would say Mexican is definitely my favorite. I would always go back to Mexican food. Um, you know, I love tacos, so I do love a good taco and probably probably would be all right with that being my last meal. Um, I love a good, like simple taco with like some shredded meat on it, um, has to have pickled onions on it, uh, probably some queso fresco and a squeeze of lime. And, you know, even just that would be really good. Um, my other choice would be though, to just have a steak that someone else cooked that I didn't have to cook it. Um, and <laughs> that I got it all to myself and did not have to share it with anybody. Awesome. I love it that the cook is like, listen, my last meal, I don't want to have to cook it. I want someone <laughs> else to take care of, take care, take care of that for you. And I don't want to share. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That sounds, especially for a hardworking, coolish mom. That's going to be one of those things is just having your own meal, not having to share it. For sure. Well, Annie, this has been a great time to just get a, to get a chance and uh, just to know you and your website and uh, know your passion. This has been, this has just been a fun time to get a chance to talk with you. Um, I want to give you a chance. Tell me and the listeners, where can we find more about you and peak to plate where can we find your recipes where can we interact on social media what's your handles i want to give you some time just to tell us that sure so um i'm not in too many places i mostly hang out on instagram and my website uh, my instagram is peak.2.plate that's p-e-a-k like the mountain peak um and then my website is peak to plate.com uh, i have a lot of great recipes on there mostly red meat like uh, venison and pronghorn but i'm starting to get a few different bird recipes on there um, summer's coming so i'm hoping to get some more fish recipes on there as well um, yeah so 
if you want to come see what I'm doing, that's, that's where I'm at. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Annie, hold on for just a second while I send our listeners on out. Folks, this has been, it's been a great time to get to talk with uh, someone who's passionate about what she does. And on, on, on top of that, being a mom and being able to share that with her kids. If you haven't already, make sure you go find your mom. Make sure you take tell the women in your life that, hey, I appreciate you and thank you for all that you've done. Because, yes, moms go above and beyond for the people around them, whether it's their kids or uh, someone around them. It doesn't even have to be in relation. That they seem to go the extra mile just to make us either happy or to find us another way to just make sure we're satisfied uh, with the meal that's in, in front of us. So make sure you take the time to do that. Maybe you do something nice for the moms in your life. But if it involves cooking, you better have those knives sharp.